people from all over the Arabian Peninsula. He said we walked into the house. I was all go one after the other. So the future of Islam is not just in the hands of the youth that are problem is that those Every time they go to the masjid, a place that is meant to in an evening like this and on such an important occasion I'm here to ask you all a very important question the question being is how do you find the future of Islam in America how do you foresee the future of the religion of Islam in this country and the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt? And in response to this particular question, I'm not asking any of you to become fortune tellers or psychics or to foresee an unpredicted future. But in response, we have to have real answers to the real question. We are now in the process of building a residence, a great residence. A residence in which the religion of Islam and the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt will reside in, in this country. And that is why while we built this residence and while we built this future we ought to ask ourselves, how do we foresee the future of Islam, the future of the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt in America? And there is one answer. There is an eminent, unchangeable answer. And that is the future of Islam is in the hands of our youth. In fact, they are the future of Islam in this country. They are the ones that are going to build and manufacture the future of Islam and the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt in this country. And that is an eminent, unchangeable reality that has yet not resonated in the minds of our communities across America. And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, the reason why you find 17 million people walking towards the shrine of Imam Hussein in the day of Arba'een. And the reason why you find yourselves present in this gathering this evening. And the reason why you are able to commemorate Ashura and Arba'een is because of the sacrifice of the Sahaba of Rasulullah who were young, who were the youth. It's because of the sacrifice of the Sahaba of Rasulullah who happened to be youth. It's because of the sacrifice of the Sahaba of Amir al-Mu'mineen who also happened to be youth. It is because of the sacrifice of the companions of Imam Hussein in the day of Ashura who also happened to be youth. It is because of the sacrifice of the companions of Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq who also happened to be youth. The, com the companions of Rasulullah, Mus'ab ibn Umar, Ammar ibn Yasir, Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, Miqdad, Bilal, Ali ibn Abi Talib, those individuals were all youth. 
the ones that stood in battle and they protected Rasulullah, the ones that slept in the bed of Rasulullah, the one that bodyguarded Rasulullah, the one that put their life on the line for Rasulullah, were youth. The companions surrounding Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muwahideen Ali ibn Abi Talib were also youth. And you have to understand that it is not an easy task for us to be able to sit in this majlis after 1,400 years and hear of the legacy of Hussein, hear of the legacy of Hussein and Ali ibn Abi Talib and Imam Hassan and Fatima al-Zahra. If it weren't for the sacrifice of those young men, who if they called themselves Ali, they were killed and prosecuted. Who if they attributed themselves to Ali ibn Abi Talib, they were killed and prosecuted. Who if they visited the shrine of Imam Hussein, were killed and prosecuted. Who they had to witness the cursing of Ali ibn Abi Talib for 97 years from every pulpit in the Muslim world. Yet they were brave, they were steadfast, they were strong. And they are the ones that pass down the legacy of Ahlul Bayt to us today. And the superstars and the greatest individuals and the day of Ashura on the battlefield in Karbala were youth. Ali al-Akbar, Al-Qasim ibn al-Hasan, Abbas ibn Amir al-Mu'mineen and his brothers. They were all youth. Some of them were even children. Allahu Akbar. A young man comes to Imam Hussein, he can barely carry the sword. He can barely carry the sword. Imam Hussein says to him, go back. You're a child. Return. As soon as he walks out of the tent, he returns holding the hand of his mother. His mother says to him, Ya Aba Abdullah, my son will go before you. Ya Aba Abdullah, I will watch my son become a sacrifice before you do, Ya Hussein. Those are the protectors and the superstars of the message, the children of Sayyidah Zainab, the superstars of Ashura, they were all youth. The greatest of the companions of Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad ibn al-Sadiq were also youth. Aban ibn Taghlib, Muslim, Zurarah, Hisham ibn al-Hakam, they were all youth surrounding Imam al-Sadiq salawatullahi wasalamuhu alayhi. And we would be making a big mistake, a huge mistake, if we think that the future of Islam Securing a bright future for the religion of Islam in this country can be done without the youth, without the Aban, without the Hisham, without the Mus'ab ibn Umar, without the Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, without the Ali ibn Abi Talibs and the Abu Dhar. And when I say this, I'm not just speaking to the youth sitting in front of me or the youth who have gone to Ziyarah or the youth who pray regularly, or the youth who are planning to go to Hajj. No, I'm speaking to all the youth, whether religious or non-religious. The future of Islam is in your hands. 
You see, for the most parts, we have created a God for our youth, for ourselves, that's just sitting there like a hawk looking at us. Every time we make a mistake, then his wrath is about to turn into a thunder and a lightning to strike us. A God that's not forgiving. A God that's not tolerant. A God that would not tolerate anybody making any sort of mistake because he has a fire and it's burning and he's waiting to throw every one of us in there. That's not God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is arhamur rahimeen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Islam introduces us to is kareem. He likes to forgive. He wants to forgive. He does not differentiate between his creation. Whether you are a sinner or you are religious, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be fair and equal. What do I mean? A man goes knocking at the door of Ya'qub. The son of Ya'qub tells him, my father is busy at the moment. You have to get an appointment and then return. So the man says, I'm hungry. I'm here for food. He says, come back later. We're busy now. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, oh Ya'qub, you're about to go on the biggest tribulation and test. He says, why? He says, because a man came knocking at your door for help. You said, get an appointment. A man came for help and he was not given help. You are my reflection on this earth. I don't want my creation to think that's also how I am. I don't want them to think that they need to get an appointment from me. I don't want them to think that if they were to come to my knocking at my door, they would be driven away. That is why Ali ibn Abi Talib, he is even willing to forgive Ibn Muljam. That is why in the day of Ashura, Imam Hussein cries. They say to him, Yabna Rasulullah, are you scared? Is that why you're crying? Are you crying for your children? Are you crying for... He says, no, I'm crying for those people. I'm crying for them, the sinners. I'm crying for Shimr. I'm crying for Umar ibn Sa'd. They've put themselves in eternal, dam in eternal damnation. I want to help them. I'm crying for them. So Imam Hussein, my brothers and sisters, is the reflection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that when he sees the people surrounding him with their swords and their spears, he says, by God, drop your swords and I will do your shafa'ah in the day of judgment. So the future of Islam is not just in the hands of the youth that are always present in the majlis. The future of Islam is not only in the hands of the youth who have gone to Karbala and who have done ziyarah. The future of Islam in this country is in the hand of every youth that wants to be part of the religion of Islam. That wants to take a step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many youth today who feel threatened if they were to come forward and say, we want a leadership position. We want to be part of the community because they'll be questioned. They'll be judged. 
and I tell them to have all the hope in Imam Hussein. To come running towards Imam Hussein for Imam Hussein will embrace them. Alam told me that last year he had series of lectures in one of the Muslim countries. He says, after the lecture, a young man came to me. He says, Sayyid, I would like to tell you my story. I think my story can inspire people. So he said to him, can you write your story or some of your story or your questions? Give it to me. I'll read it at home. So he says, this young man wrote something down. The next day, he gave it to me. He said, when I read it, I began to cry. He said, when I saw him the next day, I said, young man, I've been looking everywhere for you. Where have you been? Come. What's your story? He says, Sayyid, it was the ninth of Muharram. Everyone had gone to the majlis, to the Azadari. I didn't go. I was sitting at home. I even drank a little bit. I was intoxicated. I was a little drunk. I got bored. I said, let me take a drive. He said, I sat in my car. I was driving around the city. I saw a young woman. So I said, I pulled over. She said, you know, my destination is, for example, such and such street. He said, I'll take you. As soon as she sat in the vehicle, I started convincing her to come back to my house. So she said to me, you have no shame. It's the ninth of Muharram. Everyone is in aza' for Imam Hussein. He said to her, what's Imam Hussein? Imam Hussein is thousands, 1,400 years old. It's an old story. She said to him, listen to me. Just give Imam Hussein one chance and he will give you healing. Give Imam Hussein one chance and he will be the remedy to all your problems. He said, but look, I've been, I'm, I'm drunk, I'm a sinner. What is Imam Hussein going to do for me? She said, give him a chance one night. He said, I went home, I wore the black shirt, I went to the majlis of Imam Hussein. He said, as soon as I sat in the majlis of Imam Hussein, I was overwhelmed by the love of the people for Hussein. I felt the presence, the holy presence of the a'imma in that majlis. He said, I came home before I slept. I said, Ya Fatima al-Zahra, tonight I went to the majlis of your son Hussein, but I am a sinner. I'm a bad person. Is there a way that you would also accept a guy like me? Is there a way that I would also get a glance from you? Is there any room and space for me in this majlis? He said the next day I woke up and I felt inspired that something is motivating me to go back to the Husseiniyah. So he said, I wore my black dress, my black shirt, my black pants. I went, I said, is there anything to do for me in the kitchen, help out? They said, yes, get in. He said, I went and I was helping out in the kitchen and I was thinking to myself, is this possible? Am I really helping out in the kitchen of Imam Hussein? Am I really being one of those who are serving the service of Imam Hussein? Is this possible? He says, after the 10th of Muharram was over, 
the man in charge of the Husseiniya came to me. He said, young man, you've been a great help. Two weeks from now, we're going to Karbala. Would you like to join us? He said, I looked at him. I said, me? You want me to go to Karbala? He said, yes, why not? We'll take you. We'll pay for all your expenses. You just help out in the kitchen there. He said, I went, I told my mother, my mother started crying. She said, Imam Hussein took that glance at you. Fatima al-Zahra gave you that glance, my son, go to Karbala. He said, two weeks later, I was standing between the shrine of Abbas and Hussein. I looked at my Mawla Hussein, my Mawla Abu al-Fadl Abbas. I said, wow, this is me? I'm here, I'm in Karbala. I'm able to walk towards the shrine of Hussein. He said, I did the ziyarah of Imam Hussein. Then I came a devout, a devout member in the Husseiniya. He said, several months later, the man in charge came to me. He said, we had a man who would come to Umrah with us every year. This man is sick. He's not able to come. You fill his shoes. You come and help out in the kitchen. He said, you want me to go to Medina and Mecca? Where the ihram? I said, yes. He said, soon enough I found myself in Mecca, wearing the ihram. He said, the entire tawaf, I was just saying one thing. Ya Arham Rahami, The compassionate. Oh, you merciful God. He said, then I went to Medina. I visited the A'immah, Fatima al-Zahra, Rasulullah, we came back, my mother told me, son, it's time for you to get married. So, I have found this family, they have a nice girl, let's go and visit them. He said, I got dressed. We sat down. He said, as soon as I walked in, the father held my hand, he said, listen to me, I know your past. I know everything you've done. I know who you are. But I also know your present. Don't look at what they have done. Don't look at the past of those individuals. Believe me, look at their present and their potential and their future. For what you know, that woman, that young woman in the majlis who you're not looking at with respect at the moment, could be the mother to the greatest leader of Muslims in America. That young man could be the next leader of Islam and the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt in this country. He could be the father of the next marja' of our time. Look at the potential of those youth. So he said to me, I know everything that you've done, but past is past. I'm ready to give you my daughter. Now it's the decision that she has to make. When you speak to her, you try to convince her. He said to her, Tawakkaltu ala Allah. He said, we walked into the house. I was sitting on the couch looking. I saw the young woman walk towards me. I began to shout. She began to shout. Nobody knew what was happening. People are telling us what happened. The woman is not speaking. Is it that bad? I mean, if you don't want him, we can tell him to leave. She says, no, 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 I want him. 
Then why are you screaming? Why is this guy crying? Allahu Akbar. It's that same young woman who sat in the car in the ninth of Muharram. Telling him, give Hussein a chance and he will take you by the hand. Today there are many of our youth that need to be inspired by such personalities and stories. So that they can become, so that they are embraced by Imam Hussein, by Rasulullah, by Arhamur Rahameen, who is waiting to forgive. He forgives and he forgives and he forgives so much that even Iblis in the Day of Judgment will say, Oh Allah, you've forgiven so many. Are you going to forgive me too? Even Iblis. And yet, we are so quick to judge them. If they make a mistake, we're so quick to put them down. And tonight, I would like to speak, number one, of the definition of a teen. What does it mean to be a teenager? What does it mean to be a youth? Number two, I would like to speak of the challenges that all the youth face in America. Number three, I would like to speak particularly about the challenges of the Muslim youth in this country. And last but not least, I will look at the life of the one of the most fascinating role models in Islamic history that has been forgotten, but once you familiarize yourself with her legacy, then you're inspired forever. وَصَلُّوا عَلَى مُحَمَّدٍ وَآلِ مُحَمَّدٍ A youth or a teenager is an individual that is constantly going through change. It's a time where the mind is changing. The body is changing. Priorities are changing. Relationships are changing. They want to take themselves from the stage of dependence to independence. They depended on their mother. They depended on their father. They depended on a grandfather, on an uncle. Now they want to gain independence. As in, they want to work, gain independence. They want to move out of their residence, live alone to gain independence. They want to make decisions independently away from their parents. Also, the time that they spend, instead of the time that they spend with their parents, with their family members, now they're more keen to spend their time with their friends. It also comes with an attitude of laziness. Chill. What's chill? Everybody's chill. Either sitting on the couch or playing Xbox or chatting up with their friends. Not really wanting to do much. And some of the parents tell me, well, say it. How come my child no longer wants to hang out with us? They don't want to come out with us. They want to go out with their friends. How come my child is the one that wants to make decisions independently? Why is it that they want to move out of the house? Why is it that every time I walk into her room, it looks like a hurricane hit the room? 
a hurricane hit the room. Why is it that he never cleans his room? Why is it that he's not willing to wash his own clothes? Those are very natural things. Sometimes parents overreact and they panic. But we're trying to talk about those things. We're trying to put a remedy on them. And you see, we live in a society that introduces many cultures to the youth. So that you have a variety, you can choose any one of them. It's not just one youth culture in America, there are tens of cultures. And one of them will be chosen by your son or your daughter because they want to seek acceptance and they want to fit in society through that culture. Let me explain to you. If they become gothic or they become skaters or surfers or dudes or they become gangsters and they start dressing, you know, with the loose pants and the chains and the earrings, or if they become, for example, bodybuilders like myself. <laughs> or for example, God forbid, if they become fruities. Those are different cultures introduced by where? By their schools, by MTV, by their surroundings, by where they live. It dictates to them how to dress, which music to listen to, who to hang out with, and it's a form for them to seek acceptance in society, especially for our youth. Why? Because their father's name is different than everyone else's father's name, right? Their name is different than everyone else's name. The way their parents dress is probably going to be different than the way everyone else's parents dress. The food they have in their lunchbox is probably going to be different than the food that everyone else has in their lunchbox. When everyone goes to prom, they can't go to prom. When everyone goes to In-N-Out Burger and orders a burger, they can't eat the burger. So what happens? They need to find a way to seek acceptance. But the problem isn't just the way they dress. The problem isn't the music they listen to. The problem isn't spending, let's say, $120 or $200 or sometimes $400 on sneakers. No, the problem is that those cultures aren't just dictating to them the way they dress or speak or the music they listen to. Behind those cultures is what? Drugs. Drugs. Alcohol, sexual activities, indecencies, and ultimately becoming a failure in life. And this is reality. We live in this country. We, we face those realities. When I read in the paper that the vast majority, and by that I don't mean 60%, 80 to 90% of high school graduates have tried drugs, alcohol, and have been involved sexually. And we live in this society. We live in this country. Those are problems and challenges that all of our youth face. Amongst other challenges that they face that we need to address is bullying. There's a lot of bullying happening in school. 
A lot of people are talking about bullying in school. And our children are also likely to be subject to bullying. Especially if she wears the hijab. Because of their name. Because of their color. Because of their nationality. Because of their religion. They may be subject to a lot of bullying. And bullying causes loneliness, isolation, and depression. That is why in this country you have the greatest number of depressed teenagers. Teenagers who are depressed. Teenagers who every day they contemplate suicide. Teenagers who actually commit suicide. We live in this society. We face those challenges. Imam Hussein salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi when he embarked on this great journey of change he said I am leaving not for the sake of khilafah not for the sake of fame not for the sake of power not for the sake of popularity and Islah and change and perfection shall start from the youth. Because if you want to perfect your future, and you want to secure a bright future for Islam. And you want to purify and empower your community. You ought to empower the youth. So you ought to understand their challenges. And amongst the greatest of challenges that Muslim youth face. Our youth, our brothers, our sisters, our friends. Our sons, our daughters, as number one, they live in a society that has more action than talk. So if you go to school, high school, and you secure a good GPA, then you're likely to get into a good school. And once you get into a good school and you graduate from that school, then you're likely to secure a good job. Once you secure a good job, you're likely to make good money. Once you make good money and you have a good credit score, you're likely to be driving a nice car. And you're likely to buy a nice home. Those are all action. It's reality. It's less talk, more action. He knows if I graduate from this school, I'm going to be making this much money. And if I make this much money, I can buy this car. But when they come to the masjid... When they come to their religious affair, it's more talk, less, more talk. Or many speakers who take this pulpit. They talk, they say great things, but where's the action? I say it's good to give a loan. It's great. Give a free interest loan. But is there anybody in our community who goes to a youth and he says, look, give me your hand. I know you're bright. I know you can start a great business. I know you're the next millionaire in our community. Here's a loan. Go and start your business. I know those individuals have been engaged for more than a year. They can't afford to get married. 
There isn't anybody in our community who will go to them in secrecy, call them up, tell them, look, I don't want anybody to know. I want you to start a family. Here is the money for it. We tell them backbiting is wrong, but every time they sit on the dinner table, there is backbiting. There is riba. Every time they go to the masjid, a place that is meant to purify them, they come home the entire drive. Did you hear about what she said? Did you know that he did this and this? Do you know those people are getting divorced? This people is getting married? This is this person's dowry? This is this person's new home? This is this. They come to the masjid. There is a lot of talk about great character, being humble. But when they want to get involved in the masjid, they find that the people in charge in the masjid are far away from being humble. We say that money does not bring arrogance. A mu'min, when he has money, when he has fame, when he has popularity, he should not become angry. He should not become arrogant. But when they walk into the masjid, the most arrogant are the ones with money. Those are realities. It's only talk. But there's no action. Brothers, sisters, it is time that we change this paradigm for our youth. If you want the future of Islam to look bright, if you want to build that foundation for the residence in which the madhab of Ahlul Bayt is going to reside in, in America, then make sure that you take those, those youth by the hand. You guide them. You teach them. You inspire them. You empower them. There are many of the youth who can go to law school, become the best of attorneys. Tomorrow they'll serve, serve your community. But that's if the community is willing to take them through law school. You know what happens? Sometimes they go through law school. They manage because they're smart, because they're brave. But when they graduate, they don't want to have anything to do with the community. They say, this community? What did this community do to me? Nothing. What did this community offer to me? Nothing. When I was struggling and I could not pay my rent, or I cannot pay tuition, or I cannot buy my books, my community wasn't there to help me. Today, our youth are in need to look at those exemplary figures, live with them, speak with them, interact with them. And wallah, there is so much to say, but inshallah, we'll leave it for some other time. But sometimes you come across exemplary figures, role models, who maybe they belong to 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, a thousand five hundred years ago, but when you study their lives and their legacies, they leave that everlasting effect where it's as if you witness them and you see them in your life today. 
They inspire you. It's as if their legacy and their message speaks to you. And amongst those individuals, brothers and sisters, who has been neglected, who has been forgotten, who has never been mentioned, is Sayyida Nafisa, Bint al-Hasan al-Anwar, Ibn Zayd al-Ablaj, Ibn al-Imam al-Hasan, Ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. As- As-Sayyida Nafisa is the granddaughter of Imam al-Hasan. This personality is one of the greatest personalities that you've, you will come across in Islamic history. She was born in the year 145 after the Hijrah in the city of Medina to her father al-Hasan al-Anwar. She was the granddaughter of Imam Hassan. When she was born, her father noticed her brilliance. Her father noticed her genius. He would take her at the age four and five to the masjid. The, pe- the person leading the prayers would read the Quran. She would come home and she had memorized the Quran she heard. The person from the member is speaking the hadith of Rasulullah. She memorizes the hadith. She comes home, she speaks to her mother to her siblings, to her family of what she's learned in the masjid. At the age five, her father accompanied her to the class of Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq. Five years of age, five years old, she became the student of Imam al-Sadiq. At the age 15, she became the brightest student in his classroom. At the age 15, she was the brightest student in the classroom of Ja'far ibn Muhammad to an extent that Imam al-Sadiq opened the classroom for her and he told her to take the member. She would offer classes for men and women alike at the age 15 in Medina. People from all over the Arabian Peninsula, Muslim world, were coming to ask for her hand. Her father took her. They stood in front of the grave of Rasulullah. Her father held her. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, this is your granddaughter. And I love her. And I know that you also love her. Ya Rasulullah, tell us who should she marry. And he walked away. The next day after the class, Imam al-Sadiq called on to them. He said, come. Today we're going to pay you a visit. When he visited them, he came with his son Ishaq. And he said to her, you're to marry my son Ishaq. So she married the son of Imam al-Sadiq, Ishaq. She continued to teach in Medina. She was the student of Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq. She was the student of Imam al-Kadhim. And she became the student of Imam al-Ridha. When she became the student of Imam al-Ridha, the Abbasis came and they drove away the scholars of Al-Muhammad. So they took Imam al-Ridha to Khurasan and they took Sayyida Nafisa to Egypt. Said you cannot stay in Medina. You have too much power in Medina. 
As Sayyidah Nafisa had performed Hajj 30 times, 25 of which she walked from Medina to Mecca. When she would go to Hajj, she would speak, and the Muslims would know who she is. She would give hadith, and the Muslims would know her status. They would know the level of her knowledge. They would know that she was a faqih, she was a mujtahid. So when she was going towards Egypt, she made a stop visiting Ibrahim al-Khalil, and the news reached Egypt. They say it was the historical event. It was a historical event when the people of Egypt came to welcome Sayyid and Afisa to Egypt. Everyone had gone to the borders of the city. Welcoming Sayyid and Afisa. She came in. Everyone is telling her, Sayyidatana, Ya binta Rasulullah, or the granddaughter of Rasulullah, bless our home. Become our guest. Come to our residence. After she settled, couple of days later, she began to teach in Egypt. Men, women, elders, everyone was in her class. Suddenly they saw a man, he came. He said to her, I am honored. I am privileged to become one of your students. What was his name? Abu Abdullah bin Idris, Al-Imam al-Shafi'i. Imam al-Shafi'i. Today every Shafi'i around the Muslim world is indebted to Sayyidina Nafisa. Everything that their Imam has from Sayyidina Nafisa bint al-Hasan al-Anwar. Who was not only his teacher but his mentor. To an extent that not only Imam al-Shafi'i who is known as Shaykh al-Islam became her student, but Ahmad ibn Hanbal also became her student. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the greatest book of hadith in the Sunni school of thought. Musnad Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. He was the student of Sayyidina Nafisa, a young woman who had gone to Egypt, they followed her just to sit in her classroom. Just to take that knowledge which she had gained from Ja'far ibn Muhammad, from Musa ibn Ja'far, from Ali ibn Musa al-Ridha. Sayyidah Nafisa did not only teach, but she was also extremely spiritual, reciting the Qur'an and her tasbih, and her salah, and her nawafil. She had a Jewish neighbor. The Jewish neighbor came and he, she said to her, I have a young teenage daughter. I'm about to travel. I don't trust my teenage daughter anywhere else besides your home because she's handicapped. I want to keep her in your house. So she kept this young woman at Sayyidina Nafisa's house. Sayyidina Nafisa was doing nawafil. Between nawafil and the actual salah, she went to do her wudu again. So she took the bucket of water, she did wudu, and she splashed the water of her wudu onto this handicapped young woman. As soon as they heard the adhan, she told this young woman, stand. Stand up. She said, but I can't stand. 
I'm handicapped. She said, with the will of Allah, you shall stand. She stood. She stood when her mother came. She opened the door for her mother. Her mother says to her, what gave you cure? She says, the water of the wudu of Sayyid Nafisa gave me cure. This is history. She then goes and invites the Jewish community of Egypt. They come to Sayyidah Nafisa and all enter the religion of Islam and into the madhab of Ahlul Bayt because of the efforts and the blessed existence of a young woman. Today the Jews who entered the religion of Islam in Egypt are indebted to Sayyidah Nafisa. They came to her, they said to her, Ya bint Rasulullah, the Nile River has gone dry. Give us a dua. Maybe if you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can get out of this drought. She took out a hijab. Allahu Akbar, the most blessed attire for a mu'min woman, the hijab. She took it out, she says, I wear this hijab when I perform salat al-layl. And it is the hijab that I inherited from my grandmother Fatima and my grandparents, my grandmothers. They would all pray Salat al-Layl in this hijab. Take this hijab and throw it in the Nile River. They took the hijab and they threw it in the Nile River and the water came back. This all was said, brothers and sisters, not just for us to hear of history, but for me to directly speak to the sisters in the other room listening to me. Islam, the Hawzah, the Madhab of Ahl al-Bayt, our Maraj', the Hadith, the Quran are not stopping you from becoming the next Nafisa. Are not stopping you from becoming a Mujtahid are not stopping you from becoming a person who can issue a fatwa. Don't stop yourself either. And let me say this with full confidence. As a person who comes from the Hawza, I can tell you that sometimes there is an ayah, sometimes there is a riwayah, sometimes there is a hadith, sometimes there is a tafsir that relates to the issues of women. Men look at it. But if women look at it, it's more likely that they are inspired more than the men. It is more likely that they may understand something differently than the men. More importantly, if we have a woman that's a faqih, that's an ayatullah, that's a mujtahid, then she can inspire millions of other women. She can inspire the women in our community. But today when we come to our communities, we find that truly, truly, we tell them that men and women are equal, but are they really equal in our communities? The president, a man. The vice president, a man. Treasurer, a man. Secretary, a man. The one who invites the speaker is the man. The one who sits with the speaker is the man. The one who makes the decisions is the man. The one who runs the Islamic center are the men, and the women never have a say. But that's also not because of Islam. That's because you've shied away for so long. You've thought that this is your responsibility. You've drawn this circle and this border around yourself. And you have not yet broken those walls. Break them now. 
break them in the night of Arba'een. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.